From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A wet winter and the spring runoff means more water in the Colorado River. But what does that mean in terms of how much we get to use across the region? Then, credit scores can make or break your chances of buying a car or a home, but everyone doesn't get an equal shot at accessing credit. Although it may seem like credit scores are somewhat objective and neutral, they tend to favor consumers that come from more privileged backgrounds, from high-income households and from like predominantly white neighborhoods. And later, two modern artists with very different approaches and one unified message about inequity. Both artists are deeply engaged in cultural conversations around specific communities and deep histories, histories involving systemic racism and also how we can push forward as a community in conversation. I donated my beat up car to Colorado Public Radio. Because I was super attached to it when it was time to get rid of it. It was just nice to know that it went to CPR. All I had to do was fill out a form online. Somebody gave me a call and they came and picked it up. Our family was excited, one, to get the car off the street, and two, that it went to a good place. It kind of felt like I was giving back and saying thank you, like paying it back, but also paying it forward at the same time. If you have a car to donate, start the process at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Conditions on the Colorado River have improved slightly, so the federal government is rolling back water cut mandates for some states, including here in Colorado. Relief from good snowfall last winter and spring rain has bought the states some extra time as they negotiate new short and long-term rules on managing the river, which remains under a long-term threat due to climate change and overuse. CPR climate reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis is here to chat through all of this with us. She's also the host of Parched, CPR's podcast that explores solutions to the Colorado River crisis. Hi, Michael. Hi, Chandra. Thanks for having me on. Tell us why there's a little bit of good Colorado River news and what it means for the states that use this water. As you already mentioned, we had an unexpectedly good winter. So a lot of snow fell in the Rocky Mountains, which is where the Colorado River starts. And the snow melts and makes up most of the water in the river. And then all the rain here in Colorado and other states like California means people have been taking less water out of the reservoirs to water lawns and irrigate fields. So that means there's more water in Lake Powell and Lake Mead the country's two largest reservoirs, which are on the Utah-Arizona border and the Arizona-Nevada border. Projections from the federal government that came out earlier this week show there will be enough improvement in the lake levels that the feds can roll back some of the water cuts that they have in place. What were the water cuts the feds had put in place? So these cuts have largely unaffected Colorado, since this is about the water in Lake Mead, which Colorado doesn't use. But we send water there to make sure that we're sharing the river, but we don't actually use that water. So that means because of how low Lake Mead has gotten, the cuts have been to Nevada, Arizona, and Mexico's water budgets. That's because of an agreement that the state signed in 2019 that says, hey, once Lake Mead hits these specific levels, which are alarmingly low, certain states have to take certain cuts. In the summer of 2021, for the very first time, the feds announced a level one water shortage. 
that meant Arizona, Nevada, and Mexico had to take a cut. And then last summer, that was upgraded to a level two shortage as Lake Mead hit its lowest level on record. And that meant deeper cuts for Arizona, Nevada, and Mexico. California so far has been spared from all of this because of its senior water rights. But if a level three shortage had been declared, like some were expecting in the next Mm -hmm. couple of years, California would have also had to cut its water use. So now that conditions have improved, what's changing? Because of improved conditions, projections of how much water will be in Lake Mead over the next couple of years, the federal government is returning to that level one shortage. So that means Arizona, Nevada, and Mexico will have to take less severe cuts in 2024 than they had to this previous year. The federal rollback seems to be offering some short-term relief, but states are going to have to still find ways to use less water long-term, right? Right. This is one good snow year, and that's going to mean there's more water available right now, but the states need to use less Colorado River water. Drought, climate change, and overuse of the river is what has brought both Lake Powell and Lake Mead to their lowest levels on record within the last year. Because of that, the federal government has been threatening to step in and force the states to cut back on their water use if they can't figure out how to do that on their own. In May, California, Nevada, and Arizona came together and produced a plan on how to cut down on their water usage through 2026. The hope is that will buy the states even more time to figure out better, longer-term management rules on how to keep more water in the river and in the reservoirs. What's the status of that plan to save water? The federal government is currently reviewing it, and it supposedly will be published later this year for public comment and review. But you said that plan would buy time through 2026. What happens after that? By the start of 2027, the states that share the Colorado River are expected to have a new set of rules on how to best manage the river in times of drought. That negotiation process started earlier this year, and a first draft of these new rules in the form of an environmental impact statement are expected later next year. Historically, the 30 southwestern indigenous tribes that also rely on the river have been cut out of processes like this. Some of those tribes are calling for the negotiation structure to change, to legally guarantee their involvement in these negotiations, the results of which could define how the river is used for decades to come. But that has yet to happen. Michael, thank you. Thank you. That was CPR climate reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis. She's also the host of Parched, CPR's podcast that explores solutions to the Colorado River crisis. You may download all 10 episodes of Parched on our website, CPR.org, or on your favorite podcast app. After the break, what goes into deciding a credit score? It may not be as objective as you think. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. On the latest episode of Back From Broken, Colorado Public Radio's podcast about addiction and recovery, Katie Olawatoyan, who founded a support group called the Sober Black Girls Club, shares her story. A lot of us, honestly, every week, we just would cry because it was just, it was just life-changing. Your voice gets so hopeful when you talk about the club. Find Back From Broken wherever you get your podcasts. Supported in part by CU Anschutz. 
Today we're talking about credit. Credit scores have a lot of influence over whether we can afford to buy things like a house or a car or get a credit card. But new research finds that the way they're calculated isn't really fair to some consumers. This according to the Regional Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, which includes Denver. Economist Ng Lei To wrote about it and spoke with Colorado Matters producer Rachel Estabrook. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. What was revealed to you in this research? What did it open your eyes to? Credit scoring systems do not actually create a level playing field. Although it may seem like credit score are somewhat objective and neutral, they tend to favor consumers that come from more privileged backgrounds, from high-income households and from like predominantly white neighborhoods. And also they tend to be better indicators of credit worthiness for people with higher credit scores than those with lower credit scores. So in a sense, credit score can kind of perpetuate disparities in credit access across communities. Hmm. Okay, so credit scores are supposed to help lenders decide who will be able to pay back loans. But one mm-hmm. of your major findings is that credit scores do not always accurately predict who will be able to repay. Why not? What are the scores based on? A credit score is basically derived from the number of credit accounts a consumer has, like what their credit limit is, the amount they owe, their repayment history, and so on. And the most influential factor that goes into uh, the calculation of a credit score is a consumer's payment history. So whether you have a long track record of making payments on time would increase your credit score. And then the consumer's credit utilization rate. So this is kind of like the share of credit that you're using out of the total amount of credit you have available to you. So if you have a credit card, but you don't use it to the max, that's good for your credit score. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Actually, the lower, you know, the amounts you have outstanding on your card relative to your credit limit, the better it is for your credit score. Like people who are in like the top credit score ranges are using like less than 5% of your credit limit typically. Wow, they use less than 5% of their credit limit. Okay. Yeah. So one thing that as consumers we can do to keep our credit utilization rate low is by paying off our balances frequently. So don't wait to the end of the month. Don't wait to the end of the billing cycle. You can make multiple payments throughout the months that's going to keep your uh, utilization rate lower. Hmm. So, okay. So the two credit scoring models are FICO and Vantage score. And it really is based on your history with credit. So that sounds like it'd be really hard for someone who doesn't have a history with credit. And it's always seemed really wacky to me that credit scores don't take into account how much money you have in the bank, let's say, because wouldn't that help a lender figure out if you'd be able to pay a credit card bill? Yeah, a lot of consumers have never used credit before and they don't have a credit score. And clearly, if lenders are basing their decision on credit score, they are not going to be able to understand how credit-worthy consumers who don't have a credit score are. And um, a lot of times, lenders do not want to lend to consumers with no credit score just because they don't know anything about their credit worthiness. And um, historically, 
the bank account balances and kind of the amount of money you make and stuff is not taken into account for credit scoring. Although there are newer models of credit score that are based more on like cash flow and transaction data rather than credit history. Yeah, I definitely want to talk more about that idea of how credit scoring could be improved to help people get access to credit. But first, you mentioned that the way credit scoring works now disproportionately punishes people from disadvantaged groups. What do you mean punishes? What's the consequence there? The way the credit scoring model works is that it basically rewards people who are able to obtain their first line of credit and especially if they are able to kind of like piggyback on the credit worthiness of somebody who has an established credit record or credit score. By piggybacking, it means like doing things such as like, you know, becoming an authorized card user on somebody else's credit card or, you know, having somebody co-sign a loan with you. Those are ways for somebody who don't have credit to, you know, get started with their first line of credit and it'll give them like a head start. So if you're added as authorized user to somebody's card, you get actually inherit the credit history of that account. You get that account added to your credit file. So consumers basically who come from less privileged backgrounds or like low income households and Black and Hispanic households, they tend not to have that kind of access to somebody else whom they can piggyback on. So if you get started on the right foot with credit, you can yeah. have a good interest rate, et cetera. If you don't, what happens when people try to get credit? Yeah, so there are some credit card lenders who are willing to lend to consumers without a score. But the kind of typical scenario where the you know consumers face some difficulty getting started, then there is like the kind of worst case scenario where some consumers actually get their credit history started because of negative events such as debt collection or bankruptcies. So in that case, these consumers who start off with all these negative events, they're going to have a lower credit score from the get-go. And then research kind of have shown that there is really a persistency in credit scores. So people who start off at a lower score tend to stay in the lower score bucket. And then people who start off at higher score tend to you know, continue to have higher credit score. I was struck by a statistic in your article that about a quarter of people who want credit say they couldn't get it or couldn't get as much as they wanted, a quarter. And you think about all the things credit allows us to do to move up in the world. That's a huge portion, right? Yeah, that is a big number. These consumers may actually be credit worthy, but they they just happen to have a low credit score that does not actually reflect their true credit worthiness. And the second thing is that these consumers tend to come from less privileged communities and households. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned getting off on the wrong foot with credit through debt collection or bankruptcy. I want to note that in Colorado, your medical debt in particular actually cannot be considered in your credit score. This is because of a new state law that took effect. So this is a recent change, which should theoretically raise some people's credit scores. Medical debt should be removed from credit reports automatically here in Colorado. You just mentioned the fact that credit scores, again, might not accurately reflect somebody's ability to repay. So is anyone working on how the financial system could make credit scores more accurate predictors of someone's ability to pay back a loan and hopefully get rid of the way that right now they punish people from disadvantaged backgrounds? 
Yeah, there has been efforts, I think, both by the credit scoring industry and federal regulators as well, in terms of trying to promote the use of alternative data in credit scoring. In particular, I think rent and utility payment data has been looked at. Currently, rent and utility data are not systematically reported to credit bureaus. So the only cases where landlords or utility companies report these payments are when consumers are like highly delinquent, they are not paying at all. So only negative bill payments or rent payments events are reported, whereas positive payment events are not reported. But we might think that, you know, whether a consumer is able to pay their bills and if they are paying their bills on time regularly, that should also say something about, you know, how likely they are going to be able to repay a loan. So encouraging the inclusion of this data in credit scoring would help consumers. It seems like there are so many options of other data, like paying your bills on time, that could be used to determine what kind of credit you're eligible for that that are just not utilized right now. There is some hesitance to use this um, factors because regulation is not exactly clear about under what kind of circumstances or you know what needs to be done for this kind of data to be used. And there's always some consumer protection implications. Hopefully, we'll be seeing greater adoption of this kind of alternative data in credit scoring. Given everything you found out, let's finish with the nitty-gritty of what people can do to improve their credit scores. What methods would you suggest? I think making sure that you pay all your views on time, because payment history, that is like the most influential factor in your credit score. And uh, if you're planning to apply for credit in the future, it's good to start applying for credit early. Like, so consumers can actually start applying for a credit card at the age of 18, provided you have like an income, or you can get added to their parents' credit card. So by starting to use credit early, you, uh, you give yourself time to build a longer credit history, and that's going to be good for your credit score. I think the second thing that I think we mentioned earlier as well is to keep your credit utilization rate low, keeping the amount of your outstanding balance relative to your credit limit low. And I think there is also this kind of misunderstanding among some consumers that, oh, carrying a balance on your credit card is a good thing. But no, that's actually not good for your credit score. So don't carry a balance on your credit card unless you have to. Hmm. Pay it off multiple times a month. That's usually the, uh, the best way to go. And checking your credit reports to see if there are errors. You can request one copy of your record, report from the three major credit bureaus every year. And it is not uncommon for people's credit report to contain like inaccurate accounts or like debt collection or so on. So checking your credit report is a good thing to do. I think for people who are thinking about what else they can do to improve their credit score, there are credit building products out there that a consumer can apply for, products such as credit builder loans. Credit builder loans, okay. Yeah, so those are kind of, if a consumer applies for a $1,000 credit builder loan, the consumer actually pays upfront to the lender the $1,000 that the lender is supposed to lend to them. And Mm. then every month, the lender is going to disperse a part of the loan to the consumer and and put it into the savings account. And every disbursement is actually going to be reported as a payment to the credit bureau. So by having a signing up for a credit builder loan, you are actually creating a a record of like a loan that's being paid off every month. So that can help to improve credit score. But it sounds ultimately like the advice is be proactive, be intentional, maybe apply for credit or one of these credit builder loans before you actually need it so that you can intentionally 
keep a low balance, build up a credit score, and then when you actually need a big load of credit to buy something, to make a big purchase or something, you have this history in place. Yeah, definitely. Ying, thank you so much for sharing your research with us. Well, thank you for having me here. Ying Lei To is an economist with the Kansas City Federal Reserve, the regional branch that includes Colorado. She spoke with Colorado Matters producer Rachel Estabrook. We'll have a link to her analysis on credit scores at CPR.org. Special thanks to Pedro Lombrano for his work on this segment. When we come back, a lot of things distract people when they drive, especially cell phones. But how big of a role do they actually play in crashes? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Great classical music to keep you company through the night. It's night music on Colorado Public Radio. For a list of the music we're playing tonight, visit us online at CPR.org. About half of all drivers in Colorado say they use a cell phone while behind the wheel. That's according to a statewide survey taken last year. Experts say that habit is one factor behind a rising number of car accidents in our state. A listener wrote in to ask exactly how big of a problem is it? As part of our Colorado Wonder series, CPR's Matt Bloom reports. Rachel Stein is a mom of three kids. She drives to work in South Denver every day and regularly notices dangerous cell phone behavior among her fellow drivers. My favorite thing to see is someone holding the cell phone in front of them, but still using their their hands um, as though that's somehow less distracting than, um, than holding it to their ear. In Colorado, it's illegal to text and drive, but it's legal for drivers to hold a phone while talking. So Stein wondered, how many accidents does cell phone use cause? And how are we trying to prevent more crashes from happening? You know, I keep feel like I keep hearing in the news, you know, cyclists getting hit because someone's on their cell phone and, and you know, again, the other other reasons for traffic deaths as well. But, you know, again, it seems to me like a low hanging fruit. To get a little more clarity on the problem, I met up with one of the people who tracks it. Hey, Sam, how's it going? Good, Good to meet you. Sam Cole oversees the state's distracted driving awareness campaigns for the Department of Transportation. We hopped in the front seat of his Volkswagen SUV to talk about what he calls a problem as serious as drunk driving. Cole says distracted driving causes at least 70 deaths a year and over 15,000 crashes. Well, we really have an epidemic of traffic deaths in Colorado. We saw more traffic deaths last year than in the state's history, and I think distracted driving has a lot to do with that. Law enforcement has tried to crack down, But the state patrol says it only issued 138 citations for improper cell phone use in all of 2022. Cole says it's hard to enforce cell phone laws. I think those numbers don't surprise me at all. In fact, I think that uh, the number of crashes that involve a distracted driver in the state are are very underrepresented. You know, if you're driving along and you take your eyes off the road and you hit somebody in front of you, um, you're not going to perhaps admit to the um, to the officer that's what you were doing. There have been efforts in the state legislature to pass what's known as a hands-free law, but they've been unsuccessful. In the meantime, Cole says the state's launching a new ad campaign focused on the dangers of texting while driving. I think people really underestimate how long it takes to read a text or send a text when they're driving. 
they think, oh, they only had their, uh, their eyes off the road for a second. Well, you can drive the length of a football field in five seconds, which is about the average time it takes to read a text. Wow, a football field? If you're going 65 miles per hour, yes. And we've also calculated that if you um, take your eyes off the road just for three seconds, um, for example, that's about how long it takes to unwrap a burger, um, at 45 miles per hour, you're going to pass 20 cyclists. You would have missed 20 cyclists just in those three seconds if they had been in front of you. Cole's advice, just don't use your phone at all. If you have to make a call, use a hands-free system if your car allows it. Coles is one that does. So we haven't started to move, but a call is coming in on my Bluetooth. I will. I was going to suggest you, you take it, but like in that in that case, take the call before you start driving, right? Because yeah. the temptation might be to what like answer the call and then start driving. Yeah, I mean technically you can get away with um, talking on your phone, um, whether the phone is in your hand or you're doing Bluetooth, but. Really best practice is just ignoring those calls, ignoring those texts, and driving to your destination. With the call ignored, we set off from the parking lot. Cole says driving can still be fun and safe. You can chat with a passenger if you keep your eyes forward, and even put them to work, changing the AC or putting on some music. Anything that keeps you, the driver, focused. Here's a uh, the Beatles channel. That's That sounds good. Thank you, Matt, for being my co-pilot. Happy to do it. I'm Matt Bloom, CPR News. Go to CPR.org to find statistics about distracted driving in Colorado and tips about how to stay safe. You may also ask your own question about our state through Colorado Wonders. When we come back, two modern artists with one unified message. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I think we've got time for one more song. Indy 1023 is proud to be a media partner of Levitt Pavilion. Thank you, Levitt. The season's underway with ticketed shows, plus over 50 shows open to the public. What a beautiful evening for some music outside. For tickets and the full concert calendar, levittdenver.org. From the humor of indigenous people to the self-determination of black homesteaders, vibrant colors to the contrasting basics of black and white, two artists are showcased this summer at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver. And while they may seem very different and disconnected, the opposite is actually true. CPR arts and culture reporter Eden Lane sat down with the curators of the exhibits and the featured artists. My name is Leilani Lynch, and I am the Associate Curator at MCA Denver. I curated the exhibition Anasucalarchus Indigenous Absurdities. Hi, my name is Miranda Lash. I am the Ellen Bruss Senior Curator at MCA Denver, and I curated the exhibition Tamashi Jackson Across the Universe. Planning for these exhibitions goes back as early as 2019 and includes trips to Miami and Greece. That only heightened the energy in the spaces during the installation so we had been tag-teaming, installing Anna's show and Tamashi's show. It was, I believe, four or five days out from the opening when they were both in the building at the same time. And they met each other and immediately hit it off, started talking about their shared interests. And by the end, Tamashi was taking selfies with Anna and they were both talking about their respective time studying at Yale. And it was very cool to see them connect. 
I have to agree. I do think it does have a really special place in the exhibition process because so much of the work prior to that, you know, takes place through studio visits or virtually and just a lot of coordination and email, uh, phone calls, especially for Anna. This was the first time kind of seeing everything done. And I know in Tamashi's case, there were works that she hadn't seen for a long time. And so it's kind of a, a homecoming of all the works just kind of coming together in space. And it was really special to see Anna and Tamashi meet, especially in the wonderful David Adjay building, because there's all of these great kind of vantage points in which you could see both artists work. And I just remember looking up and seeing them both at one of the second floor balconies, looking over at Anna's sculpture, and that's where they were kind of convening. But there's wonderful opportunities for exhibitions in the museum to overlap and have conversation both more passively and then in that moment actively between the two artists. You might think that was a challenge for a museum to have so little separation between exhibitions, but I think it's one of the strengths of your space. I agree. Yeah, agreed. So let's talk about how these exhibitions communicate with one another. Was it designed that way? Did we just get lucky? Well, I think it's always more than luck, but certainly we talk a lot about what kind of conversations we can foster between artists' work. And we always want the sum to feel greater than its parts. And knowing that both artists are deeply engaged in cultural conversations around specific communities and deep histories, histories involving systemic racism, and also how we can push forward as a community in conversation. We're always looking for broader conversations, whether it be through an interest in climate change or an interest in civic engagement. We try to find a loose thread at the same time that allows each artist their own opportunity to showcase their individual voice. So it's meant to feel complementary as a conversation. How about you, Leilani? Talk to me about discovering or facilitating the conversation between these two artists and their work. Sure. Yeah, I think what I can add to what Miranda's already said in terms of the the sort of conceptual groundings of their work being about exploring different communities and histories and really presence was also just sort of the aesthetic contrast but complement between their two work. Tamashi uses a lot of color to explore the various themes and subject matter in her work whereas Anna sort of stays with a more minimalist black and white palette with some sort of natural colored exceptions. So I also liked thinking about how that would play out uh, visually in the spaces. The name for Tamashi Jackson's exhibition, Across the Universe, was derived from one of the artist's favorite pieces from her last body of work called The Great Society, which opened at Tilton Gallery in New York in November of 2022. So before we get into the what I think are three new pieces that you're debuting mm -hmm. in this show. Have you shown in Colorado before? No, I haven't. <laughs> this is my first time. I'm really in love uh, with Colorado. They brought me out here last summer for a residency, a partnership with Swoon Art House that is a product of the Scintilla Foundation, a philanthropic arts and humanities-focused foundation based in Boulder. But honestly, I always go back in my mind to my first brown bag lunch with staff members at MCA Denver when I first landed here, when I got here last summer, I was so moved as I continued to learn more and more about the history of the organization before there was a big fancy building. And um, the community-centered programs and efforts and strategies 
that were founded before the museum had this location, had this building, and, and so many of them continue now in this new iteration of its life. I really left here quite hopeful. I wasn't expecting to leave with my heart so full, but the people that I've met here and the places that I've been, the working people who've embraced me, I just fell in love. So it was really easy to go back to Massachusetts and get to work with what I'd been given of the space. It was it was a, a joy to make work that was Colorado-centered and very much inspired by a film made about the experiences of Black people from the 1800s to the present called This Is Not Who We Are, produced by uh, Katrina Miller, Barrett Strong, and John Tweedy. Tell me about creating pieces specific to Colorado, because if you haven't been here before, where did you draw your inspiration? I know you said from the film, mm-hmm. but but that's where you get the ideas. How about the visual language that you used? Oh, well, that's been growing inside of me for, for quite some time. I've been trying to figure out how to embed works of art, of visual art, with narratives of public concern. Mm. I was influenced growing up in Southern California and Northern California. I was greatly influenced by the muralist tradition that just washed all the cities that I cared about in painting. Large scale painting in the built environment, visualizing people's stories back to ourselves. I had an opportunity to be mentored in the Bay Area by master muralists, Juan Alicia, Susan Cervantes, and also Manuel C. Montoya. And it was just very alive in the Bay. So this is the late 90s. And a lot of rich history was still just like walking around, including my grandparents. And I went there to go to art school at the San Francisco Art Institute, one of the nation's oldest art schools that was founded in the, I think it's 1847. And uh, I deferred. (laughs) I deferred Mm -hmm. so that I could learn how to paint murals and learn how to be an art educator. So it kind of like stayed with me, like this desire to ask questions and to visualize complex answers from the public is something that I I, I trace back to, to all of this. It's kind of just who I am. Can't really shake it. So I hadn't been to Colorado before and I visited the Holiday Theater. We went out to Marble, Colorado. We visited the the quarry there. We spent some time in the San Luis Valley where I really, really fell in love with uh, with the space and with the people out there. So we visited Red Rocks. We visited Dinosaur Ridge. So I think that I'm probably just like any other person that comes here and is seduced by the Rockies. And then I saw this film at Chautauqua as a guest of Rebecca Domenico, who's a founder of the Scintilla Foundation, which also supported This Is Not Who We Are. Unfortunately, I saw the film very close to my time to leave. But I'm thankful for the film because I was able to take that with me. Thanks to Scintilla, I was able to meet with the filmmakers. Thanks to MCA Denver, I had research assistants from a brilliant young woman, uh, Florence Blackwell, who's uh, studying to be an art historian. And we were able to work together from afar to kind of for me to continue the research in absentia, to embed images that I learned about in the film, like images of Black people in Colorado from the 1800s to the present, producing spaces for self-determination, facilitating spaces for joy, for peace, and for self-determination. There are images from the Deerfield Colony, 
They are images of Black tourists at Pikes Peak in 1925 intersecting with an image of Black young adults gathered in a lectern in Boulder, Colorado, for what at the time had been organized as Saturday Freedom Schools to provide an alternative space for Saturday education that was not inherently hostile to Black students. Boulder-based artist Anna Sukalarkas created new works specifically for this exhibition at MCA Denver. This began through a 2021 award from Creative Capital, a New York-based foundation. Tell me about the title, Indigenous Absurdities. So I knew early on that I wanted this project to really focus on Indigenous humor, but not just be about jokes or ideas of humor, but the the kind of ways that humor infiltrates a community or culture. And I think that especially with the onslaught of memes and, you know, video snippets that we see online and different things that it it becomes much more than just that. Mm. And absurdity seemed to be a way to kind of encapsulate um, that larger idea of how humor infiltrates kind of a, a people, a community. So when you walk through the exhibit, you notice there's, it's very um, monotone. It's pretty much black and white. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some neutrals thrown in with leather and sinew and some kind of minor color with objects. But for the most part, it's black and white because I like having a pretty simple color palette, kind of minimalist. I've always had a very complicated relationship with color. Um, I think a lot of my work deals with native identity. And I feel like color, specifically skin tone, tends to be a big part of the conversation when we talk about culture and identity and those types of things. And I feel like it can really skew a conversation and Mm -hmm. kind of push it one way or another. Mm -hmm. And so within my artwork, that's not something I'm interested in talking about. And so early on, I kind of decided that the palette that I would be using would be more minimalist kind of across my practice. I'm not to say that I won't pursue color in different ways, but just at right now and specifically for this project, I wanted to keep it pretty minimal. Is there a risk or any high stakes element to programming the exhibition using indigenous humor or jokes as part of your storytelling in this exhibition, particularly when you realize that most of the viewers, the attendees, will be non-Native people? I think that's something that I've thought about previously. Um, I think I, you know, I was really aware of creating pieces that were more open-ended and I feel like um, a bit more open for interpretation in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And there are pieces and phrases, because there's a lot of text in my exhibition, that is very specific within Native communities. And I decided I wanted to keep that. I think there are definitely entry points for people from, you know, any background, but I wanted to have those specific moments where I'm connecting directly with a Native audience and to have those moments where, you know, I I feel like this is for you. I made this specifically for you. And when they giggle or when they laugh or have a little chuckle, that just lights up my life. (laughs) (laughs) Because, um, Because that's the thing is that there's so much work out there that's not for us that I really, I think I was much more aware of kind of, um, creating it specifically for 
a native audience, but to have, you know, still kind of some broad moments for everyone. That's one of the things about all good art telling the truth in that the more specificity that the artist takes, the more universal it becomes in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you find that to be true, that the specificity makes it more accessible or at least more honest for anyone who happens to be watching or taking it in? I, I think it does. I think there are ways and kind of phrases that I use within the pieces that definitely have dual meanings mm-hmm. and could be interpreted a number of different ways. And so I feel like while there are some things that are very specific, it could mean something to a non-Native audience, but it also means something completely different to a Native audience. And and just kind of walking through the galleries with um, people in the past couple of weeks, like right before the opening and, you know, during the opening, I was able to kind of see that. And it was really exciting to know that people were connecting with the work in different ways. And it was, I think, just as enjoyable. What's the impact or meaning for you to have this particular exhibition so close to home for you? I think um, when I first came up with this, the idea for this project, um, back in like 20, you know, around 2019, I think, I didn't have an, a place in mind of where I wanted to show it. I was actually living in Washington, D.C. and had been living there for well over a decade. But when the opportunity came, like I said, at MCA Denver, it just seemed so perfect this kind of nexus of, you know, the Mountain West, um, a place that is central to tons of different tribes, to different native communities, a real crossroads in a lot of ways. It immediately, you know, was was the best place I could possibly think of. And I feel so grateful um, that I'm able to share this exhibition in such, you know, an iconic place like that highlights contemporary art, but also is central to much of kind of Native peoples and Native communities at West. So, of course, we know that Colorado is also Native land. Can you talk about your connection to your heritage, if you're comfortable doing so, telling us a little bit about that? Yep. So I'm um, Navajo Creek and Greek. I am um, was born in Lawrence, Kansas, grew up between Kansas and New Mexico, going back to visit my family all the time, and then finally graduated from high school in Taos, New Mexico. But all while growing up, I was also very aware that I was Greek, that my family comes from the island of Crete in Greece. I think it was starting in 98, I started going to visit my family. I was the first member of my family on the American side to go back to Greece in over half a century and really, you know, reconnected with them. I mean, these aren't distant relatives. These are my dad's first cousins. And so spent pretty much every summer with them um, up until I had kids and, uh, you know, we're going again this summer to go visit them. So that connection's really strong um, and very much there. And, uh, but I also, you know, have my family that live on and around the Navajo reservation that are, you know, still working, doing stuff and try to visit them as much as I can as well. (laughs) What can an organization like MCA Denver or any arts organization do to provide better access for Native peoples to work that's about them, that's on display in these institutions that may not always feel as welcoming? 
I think MCA is doing just that, bringing in, you know, a native artist. Um, it was really great to, you know, help them come up with some ideas for merchandise for the gift shop that seemed pertinent. And people like native people were really excited to see that, you know, those things. And so that was exciting to do. And then they're also scheduled an indigenous comedy showcase that's going to happen in August. And things like that, like programming that supports what's happening, that's not necessarily completely aligned with it, but, you know, is very, you know, is consistent with the ideas, but also place throughout the museum. So just not like, I like the idea that, you know, when you walk in, there's bags that say, you know, it may be called Denver, but it's still native land and, you know, that people can buy and then they can see the show. I didn't know that that was occurring for for this (laughs) exhibition too. That's marvelous. So, yeah. And all, all of my proceeds, all of my profit from the bags will go directly to Colorado Native Org, which is a local cultural arts organization that runs um, out of the Redline Center in Denver. And so I'm really excited to take what I, you know, these opportunities that I've been given and give back directly to an organization that hosts classes to teach beadwork and um, craft, you know, different craft techniques and singing to local Native people. And so I think helping create that line that direct line of support in a community and specifically helping Native organizations and Native people is ideal. And that's, I feel like that's happening. And I'm really excited about being able to be a part of that. What do you hope is the takeaway for anyone who comes to see this exhibition this time? I think one of the biggest takeaways I I hope people will leave with is that Natives can be ridiculous <laughs> and goofy that, you know, I, I feel like we're starting hopefully in mainstream with, you know, TV shows that are out there and um, different, you know, things that are happening that are much more mainstream. People know that natives are still around and that we're here, but that, you know, we're not all just serious. Well, we have, you know, attorneys and people doing fights about water and land and for, you know, our native children, that there is this other side of us that is a bit goofy and ridiculous and and that, that we can make connections through that as well. And I think that's, you know, some of the things that you'll see in the show well, I, I think will make you laugh and they're 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 intellectually funny and stimulating, but they're also goofy and kind of sometimes stupid, <laughs> which which I love layering all of those, you know, direct puns in. <laughs> it's it's fun to be funny and punny. <laughs> fun to be funny and punny. What is it that you are hoping you have a chance to say that you're not normally given space to say? Hmm. I think that Native people, just like any other people that you kind of meet and get to know, are very complex and contradictory. And I think being able to share that with my community of kind of central Colorado, the Front Range, is really important to me. It's it's something that I'm really excited about that this layering of, of indigenous humor that I'm able to share with people, like I said before, is not, you know, it's just not one-sided. It's, it's layered with ideas of decolonization, of 
of racial, you know, relationships, um, of tribal relationships between tribes. It's, you know, there's so many different ways to kind of look at these different ideas. And I think that when people come in to see the work, they'll notice those things that, oh, wow, Native humor isn't just this one thing. It's actually all of these different things. And I can look at it from all these different ways. And I'm excited to share that. And I think that's something that we don't necessarily hear from Native artists, or we usually don't get asked. It tends to be like the political side of something or the serious side, the stoic side of something. And to realize that we're multifaceted people that are able to kind of create allegory and illusions within our work, just like any other, you know, complicated artwork and complex artwork. And so those are the things that I, I hope people ask about and that they want to learn more about. Both exhibitions, Tamashi Jackson, Across the Universe, and Anna Sokolakis, Indigenous Absurdities, run at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver through Sunday, September 10th. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. We've chosen the next book for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Go as a River is set in a real-life Colorado town that was gradually evacuated, then flooded to make way for a reservoir. The author is Shelley Reed of Gunnison. Well, I think it's a little piece of Colorado history that a lot of Coloradoans aren't even aware of. Blue Mesa Reservoir, as the largest reservoir in Colorado to so many people, is just this absolutely beautiful lake. But knowing the history and knowing there are actually three towns at the bottom of that beautiful lake really give it, uh, to me at least, so much more interest and historical depth than most people are aware of. So I wanted to tell that story. Her, dis her displaced characters are peach farmers wondering what their future will hold. Go as a River is also about the displacement of indigenous people. Pick up a copy and read with us. Then join my co-host Ryan Warner on September 13th in Grand Junction. We'll record an interview on stage with author Shelley Reed. Details and tickets are available at CPR.org slash turn the page. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC. Thank you.